stealing in as relapse sums above the den. It's hard to know if this will Hello and welcome to episode 416 of the Thinking Poker Podcast. From Catonsville, Maryland, I'm Andrew Brokus. I will be joined shortly by Carlos Welch in Las Vegas, Nevada. We will have a proper introduction and a strategy segment for you. And then we'll be joined by Kara Scott, who I believe was in Ljubljana, Slovenia at the time that we spoke. That is where she now lives. Uh, so this was a tricky one to organize in terms of time zones, uh, with Carlos being in Nevada and Kara being in Central Europe. It's a nine-hour time difference between them, but we made it work, and it was a fantastic conversation. I'm sure that everyone will enjoy it. Uh, you know, we all know Kara from the WSOP and WPT, and and you're seeing her on those broadcasts. Uh, some people may follow her on Twitter as well, and you get a little bit more insight into um, who she is. But uh, it's just fascinating. Uh, she has has really lived a remarkable life, done some really unique things, had an extremely unique childhood. Uh, I don't want to give too much away because she's going to explain it better than I am. But I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, of course, Kara is a professional. Uh, you know, she's better spoken than uh, even Carlos or, or I, um, and so that's certainly contributing to it. You know, she knows how to how to tell a story, how to hold your interest. Extremely charismatic, uh, but I think also just kind of a very warm and open person. I, I enjoyed this interview a lot, and I think that any fan of Thinking Poker, you know, th this is a, a really a classic Thinking Poker episode where we we get to know more deeply someone who you know probably everyone listening or almost everyone listening to this has some sort of like you know surface relationship with Kara Scott just from having you know, seen her in, in so many very prominent uh, places and, and prominent poker broadcasts over the years uh, and getting to know the person behind that I don't want to say facade that makes it sound phony but you know what I mean uh, so yeah Really love this conversation. Um, I have a great strategy segment coming up with Carlos as well. As I mentioned, uh, that strategy segment, of course, brought to you by GTO Wizard. We always appreciate your support on the Patreon. Uh, if you want to hear more strategy segments from us, patreon.com slash thinkingpokerdaily. Uh, this is a great time to sign up for a couple of reasons. One is that you're going to get access to the entire back catalog. So that's coming up now on two years worth of um, these Thinking Poker Dailies that we've done. And you sign up now, you immediately get access to all of them. Uh, so that that's a fantastic value right there. But I also think just in terms of the, the time of the year, I, mean, I don't know who knows when you're listening to this, but at the moment that I'm recording it, it is the last day of August. Kids are going back to school. Maybe it's time for you to go back to school as well. This is your opportunity to start taking poker seriously. Signing up for the Patreon is one way of doing that. Another option, if you really want to take it seriously, I know I mention a lot that I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. Uh, I don't always tell you, you know, how to how to act on that. So you can um, contact me, Andrew at ThinkingPoker.net. Sending me an email is probably the very best way to reach me. 
thinkingpoker.net slash coaching has some more details about the various offerings. There's a contact form there if you'd rather do that um, to, to contact me. You can message me on Twitter. My DMs are open if, if you want to message me there at thinkingpoker. Uh, there's basically two main uh, options that I offer. One is the kind of standard like one-on-one uh, coaching, do that over like Skype or Zoom. And I have specific packages that are built to whether you're a, a tournament focused player or a cash game focused player, uh, they're really designed to improve your overall thought process in poker. I mean, we could draw examples from No Limit, from cash or tournaments, depending on, on what you play, but it's really focused on big picture poker skills. How should you be thinking about hand reading? How should you be thinking about value betting? How should you be thinking about bluffing? What are the questions you should ask yourself when you're making these decisions at the table? If you've listened to a lot of the show, you have some sense of how I think about these things already, but getting the one-on-one -on -one feedback of actually being able to go through the motions of, of trying to apply those processes yourself as we talk through hands and getting my feedback on that. I mean, that's something I, I've worked. It's been about 15 years now that I've been coaching. I've worked with hundreds of people and I, you, just, you see the difference when you're getting targeted feedback on your own thought process. Uh, so certainly encourage people to check that out. And then uh, there's also an option, somewhat more economical, if you want to um, just have a, a video review. This can be if you have like an online hand history from a tournament or a cash session, uh, I can I can record a video where I just go through you know, hand by hand, I skip very quickly past any trivial folds, and we'll just give you my comments on how you could play individual hands better, but also try to draw some, some bigger picture comments about like what you should be working on as a player in general, uh, and, and suggest some resources for you to work on those things as well. Uh, if you want to send a database, I can review a database as well. Or if you just have some questions that you feel like don't necessarily Necessarily require like one-on-one -on -one, um, interactions. I can make a video, you know, reviewing if you, if you have notes from from live hand histories. If you have like theory questions or whatever, um, I can I can record a video answering all of that. And that's something that I do for roughly half the price of the one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, like the real-time coaching via Zoom or whatever. So again, Andrew at ThinkingPoker.net would be the best way to reach me if you're interested in that. Uh, thinkingpoker.net slash coaching for more information, or you can DM me on Twitter at thinkingpoker. And now here's some free strategy from Carlos and me, followed by our interview with Kara Scott. We better just leave it unread and retreat on the double. Our strategy segment today comes from Daniel. Daniel played this hand in a uh, live cash game, 1,100 hours effective, a 2-5 game, so a little more than 200 big blinds deep. Uh, here is in middle position with 5-4 suited, uh, opens to $20. I think this is already a, a decision point. Um, I would say I, I can certainly see myself opening this in a sufficiently soft lineup. I think it is important mostly that you don't get three bet too often. Like this is not a hand you want to continue to a three bet with. So in a more aggressive game, I, I would fold it. Getting called by players at position on you is also not great. Um, but if they play badly enough after the flop, like this is a hand. So it's not a hand that I open with 100 big blinds. I think with 200 big blinds, the size of your card starts to become a little bit less of a liability. And because you're going to have deeper stacks and the ability to make like straights and flushes against people who are going to overvalue hands, maybe also the ability to run some big bluffs, just generally like the more as Nate would say, like control you feel like you have over the table, just ability to figure out kind of what what's going on and and, and take like 
very exploitative lines. Um, the more you're going to get away with that kind of thing, the more you're looking for excuses to get involved in pots. But again, it's very important that you don't get through that too often because you do want to you know, see the flop. Right. Don't get three bet too often. And also, if you make a hand and your opponents really want to get all the money in, like don't get married yes. to your hand if you make a flush. Like that's the concern I would have for a lot of my students is like, well, I played this hand to make a flush. I didn't come here to fold a flush. I mean, <laughs> a flush. But maybe you shouldn't have played the hand. So like this is a hand that I think is a mix between a raise or a fold. And the better you are at knowing where you uh, where you are post-flop and like having control over the table, the more you can choose to play this hand. But if you're kind of newer to the game, this is one that's fine to just let it go. Yeah, I'm really glad you said that because I, I I was talking up making like exploitative value bats or exploitative bluffs, but there's also exploitative faults. And so, you know, being able to not stack off when you flush under flushed is also an important part of playing this end. Yes, yes. So here opens the $20 with five, four suited in middle position, the button calls and the big blind calls. With $60 in the pot, the flop is eight of diamonds, seven of diamonds, six of clubs. And our hero has five, four of diamonds. So we flopped the low end of the straight, also a low flush draw. And the big blind comes right out betting for $25. And our first decision point is, do we call or raise? Well, before we answer that question, we want to look at this read that we have on the big blind, who Daniel says that this villain is a passive reg and that he's seen them make frequent um, calls pre-flop and then play pretty fit or fold post-flop. And they haven't been involved in too many massive pots uh, in multiple sessions that, in any massive pots that, in multiple sessions that Daniel has played with them. So normally when someone leaves here, what I tend to do is put them on a top pair hand. Usually it's kind of a weaker top pair, but on this board, even the weaker top pairs kind of have like at least a gut shot with them, a lot of it. So I really don't know what to put this guy on, but then more, but more importantly is that this guy is passive and generally passive players aren't even leading him with a weak top pair. So I think my first thought is that this guy has a much stronger range than I'm used to when I see dunk bets. And with that information and having the bottom end of a straight, Oh, but we do have the flush draw to go with it, but still, it's not a great flush draw. Okay, okay, so this is going to be me. Oh, wait a minute, let's see if I can do this right. I'm trying to channel something I've heard you say multiple times recently, and that is even in spots like this where you don't think you are in super great shape versus uh, one guy, in multi-way pots, it might make sense to make a small raise just to get the other guy out. So that's kind of going through my head. But then the other thing that's going through my head is when you have a draw, maybe you don't want the other guy out. But this draw is kind of weak. So I'm kind of torn between the two. Like, But then if we do raise and the other guy, what we're, what we're concerned about is the guy making a bigger, like he's not folding a bigger flush draw. Can we get him off of some hands that could make bigger straights? If I can name a decent number of hands like that, then I would see reasons for raising. But I'm kind of struggling to come up with too many hands like that. He would fold for a small raise size, like something like ace-nine with no diamonds. If we make a small raise, 
does this guy fold at him? If so, I like a raise. I mean, if he calls, that's fine too. We're pretty much favorite against that hint. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, but honestly, is... like, I don't, I wouldn't really, I, I think that the, the, that third player is a, is a secondary consideration. I, I think we're in better shape than you do, maybe against the, the big blind. I, I feel like some combination of, I think when people flop really good hands, they might be a little less inclined to dunk bet. So this doesn't feel as much to me like 10-9 as it does like two pair or a set or something. I think that's more the kind of hand people like to dunk bet. Yeah. You put your finger on something I was missing, which is most of the people I play against, when they dunk bet, they have a weak top pair that they're trying to protect. And then when this guy who's overly passive dog bets he's probably not doing it with those hands and i just skipped straight to like a range that was like way stronger than our hand but i skipped over hands like two pairs and sets like those are hands that a lot of people don't dunk bet with but an overly passive player if they're gonna dunk bet anything is probably one of those type of hands so so you're right so we are in pretty good shape versus that guy's range and so now when i think about it that way I really do like a raise because like you said, we don't mind if the other guy continues with a draw, given that we're in pretty good shape against um, straight draws right now. Yeah. I, I think we just, we, we do want to grow the pot. Like, so I feel like we have a, a we have a lot of equity here. I mean, the, our just made hand value. We probably have the best hand. It, our hand is difficult to draw out on given that we also have the, the flush draw. So even some of the outs that the villain has like, nine eight or something um or a set you know a, a few of their outs uh are, are actually going to make us a flush or not not true for a set but it is true for um for, for the straight for the higher straight right. uh, or, or a straight draw so our hand is quite difficult to draw out on we're also free rolling against like a lower five four i don't know if that's a hand that they could have um so i think like there is a lot that we're doing very well against and it definitely behooves us like we're in quite good shape against two pair that hand's a very difficult time drawing out on us so it definitely behooves us to grow the pot against them and and to do it early because one of the problems with even a card that helped like a diamond falling or certainly like a 10 or a nine falling there is the risk that we got drawn out on but it's also just you know those sets or two pairs are going to be less excited about putting money in against us so i think right now we've got someone on the hook where we feel good enough i feel good enough against their range that i, I want to put money in Maybe we deny some equity to the other player behind. Maybe they come along. I'm not really that concerned about them one way or the other. I think it's just like raising is is very, very good against the big blinds lead and button can do whatever button wants to do. Yeah. Yeah. So what what happened to me here is that passive player makes an aggressive action, yeah. red flag. Yeah. But then I forgot that red flags are good for you when you have hands that are close to the nuts. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> like if I had two pair here, I would be worried. Even like bottom set, I would be a little bit concerned. But I forget that, you know, even the the uh, low end of the straight is a pretty good hand here. So you're right. The red flag is actually good for me in this case. Uh, so Hira does raise. Uh, the the dunk bet is for $25. Hira raises to 110 um, which is nice, ambitious side. Like I might've considered a smaller raise size than this, but I always encourage people to be ambitious in situations like this. People will usually pleasantly surprise you with their willingness to call. Very few people go to the casino to fold. Yes. Um, and sure enough, the big blind does call this raise. So we go to the turn with now uh, the button folds. We go to the turn with now $280 in the pot and the turn is the nine of diamonds. So the board is now eight of diamonds, seven of diamonds, six of clubs, nine of diamonds. 
we have five four of diamonds tantalizingly close to the straight flush but is in fact just a flush uh, and not a very high flush and now the big blind dunk bets again um betting 110 dollars into the 280 dollar pot oh the old double dunk the double dunk see now i feel like the red flag is less good yeah I'm, I'm a little more worried now <laughs> now i feel like now you maybe feel the way i felt on the flop uh but when i was like you know misreading the situation but now we shown strength our hand has kind of like although we improved to a flush our hand has actually kind of like dropped in rank i think uh, versus his range especially when he dunks again given that he's a passive player who's facing pretty good aggression from us so i really don't like raising turn like i'm i'm not folding but i'm like not not quite side calling like whatever between like a side call and a, a fist pump call yeah i'm doing that kind of call yeah my first thought is like well it's, it's bad news in that i don't think the like sets and two pairs are dunk betting a second time here like, this is a terrifying card for them right but then well, what if he has uh what if he just turned a straight and so that's why he's he's betting he has a 10 that's a hand we're doing uh incredibly in fact that hand is, is often drawing dead if it doesn't have a diamond uh so that would be nice but then it's like well what 10x did he bet the flop yeah. and then <laughs> call a raise with like jack 10, 10. yeah yeah 10 9 i guess would be the main candidate yeah, um, which he really should be three betting on the flop, but many people I understand don't don't do that. <laughs> especially, especially passive players. Yeah, so yeah, I guess that that would be the great white hope would be the ten nine. Right, right. I agree with that. Um, but yeah, it is worrisome, and my my biggest concern is even if the villain does have a straight, I would be surprised if they call it a raise. Yeah. Like us raising here is like I would be terrified in their shoes even with a low flush with us raising so i think if we raise here there are i think there are enough flushes in their range that you know we we mostly just get called by better hands if we raise so i i agree it's i mean it helps this is a pretty small bet he's betting 110 into 280 so it doesn't really feel to me like oh do i call or do i fold like i think it's solidly a call because we are getting a, a pretty good price but and i do think there's like maybe some value hands that we're beating but i it does not feel to me like a hand that's strong enough to raise Agree. Uh, and that kind of answers the final question because uh, the hero does call, but he says he considered raising. And now um, on the river, there's $500 in the pot, $850 effective. The river is uh, the deuce of spades, so total blank. Final board, eight of diamonds, seven of diamonds, six of clubs, nine of diamonds, deuce of spades. And the big blind bets again for $250. So they're betting half pot. And I mean, given everything that I said on the turn, doesn't really feel to me like anything has changed on the river. It still strikes me as a hand that's not good enough to raise. The only question would be, do you feel so strongly that you can read into this bet size that just like if they if they had a flush, they would have bet bigger than this? I can imagine some players I might feel that way. But even then, it's sort of like you have to hedge that against, are they actually going to call with worse if you raise? So like, even if you are good here 90% of the time, that's not necessarily a reason to raise like you still have to get called by some of those hands that you're ahead of and that feels like a tall order to me yeah and i don't think they necessarily would bet bigger if they had a flush that wasn't the nut flush but just happened to be better than ours so something like 
Yeah, but now I'm kind of blanking mm-hmm. what what that would even be like. Oh, like Queen Jack of Diamonds or something. Yeah, yeah, Queen Jack of Diamonds, even something like maybe like ten five of diamonds, something like that. Um, but yeah, some diamond draw that's not the nuts. Like I can see them choosing this sort of size with that. I'm thinking between calling a folding. Are you ever folding here? Probably not. I don't think so. I, I think there's still enough of a chance that they have a 10. And and I mean, we do have two diamonds in our hand. It's a little hard for them to have flushes. I mean, there's there's plenty of them out there. But like the, the blocking effect when you're holding two diamonds is is not trivial. Um, I, I, I think there's enough chances we're good. That, yeah, I, I think we can win this 25% of the time. Yeah, you might be right. You might be right. Yeah, I, I like when I just give a lot of credence to reads that people like when he says a passive rig and the action that we've seen so far and it's like I don't see passive players betting into this sort of action without a really strong hand so I'm torn man in game I would probably make a fold here but I can see that I can see that being um, a mistake at least a theory mistake but if I'm if I'm trusting this read I like I like fold I mean, he's just not, he's not doing this with a straight, man. He's not doing this with a straight. Like, I'm I'm feeling, I feel like I'm in the moment right now. Like, I, I'm in the tank. I'm at the table right now, and I'm in the tank, and I'm asking myself, is this passive guy who I played multiple sessions with, and I've never seen him involved in a big pot, and this is a pretty big pot, I think, facing this sort of action, is he ever doing this with a straight? Yeah, I mean, I think there's an opportunity to use live reads here. Uh, I, I I would not hate folding if if our if if this letter were phrased in a way of like, I don't know, the guy felt really strong, but I felt like I had to pay him off because it's just too exploitable to fold a fly. Like I I would no if if he feels really strong to you, then yeah, fold. Um, but I I think this is often. But I think I would need a read like that. I, I would need to feel oh this this guy just 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 radiating strength. He's he feels super confident. Otherwise, it seems to me like there's a good enough chance he just has a ten or, I mean, I don't know. Bluffs happen. Yeah, that's true. I know but they always I'll... have it, but like they don't always have it. Twenty 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 three Andrew hashtag bluff happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think you make a great point about libraries, and also you got to remember that ninety five percent of my experiences from tournaments, and in tournaments you got to be a lot more careful about calling river bets than you do in cash games. Uh, so that's part of what I'm feeling here. But I, I really want to look through these comments to see if he says anything about live reads so we can just kind of like no, read. No, he, he, wa- he wants to know if he can raise the river for value oh yeah so in that case uh in that case he's probably honed in here and and yeah and and, and that's probably in front like i had read this whole thing so the fact okay. that like at no point was he thinking about folding and he was like am i good enough to raise like that's probably part of where my confidence is coming from is okay, okay. You know, knowing that he's <laughs> i was wondering that because i didn't read ahead and i was thinking like man i must be really rusty on cash games and andrew is not concerned here at all uh but at least you're concerned enough to not be considering a raise um no, so I, that, I think what I would do in real time is I would sort of like roll my eyes and call and then feel bad for knit rolling when I won. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So what ends up happening? Uh, I don't think we have results. We don't have results. Let's see. Did he, well, he didn't fold if he was thinking about raising. 
Um, my my guess, um, because he says would villain call with 10x here. So I, I don't think he raised and got called by a 10. I think the most likely thing is that he called and then saw that the villain had a 10. And now this is like six straight range reading of like, why did this person write to us with this hand? <laughs> like, right, right. My, my guess is he called, the villain had a 10, and then he was like, oh, maybe I could have raised. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know what? Um, that's a good trait to have. Yeah. To to win a pot and wonder if you could have won an even bigger one. Like you definitely want to be cutthroat like that. I would caution Daniel to not see everything so rosy as he did in this hand. And I think the flop I was a little bit too pessimistic, but on the turn, I think the turn and, and maybe also the river. I think Daniel was not seeing the same red flags that you and I saw, at least on the turn. And I mean, you you wouldn't consider raising the river. So you saw some red flags there that he didn't. I would say turns and river on the turn and river, Daniel was like not seeing red flags that he should see, I think. But besides that, if I'm wrong and like maybe he just had some good live reads where maybe that's the reason he didn't see the red flags. If he felt very strongly that he had they got beat, it's a very good trait that he's considering raising with a hand here that's um pretty far from the nuts. Um, if he thinks he can get caught by worse, like that's really good. Yeah, and this is advice that I often give people um who are struggling with loss aversion or, or risk aversion generally, as most humans do. Like mo most humans are to some degree loss averse. And that is something that you need to overcome in order to make really good poker decisions is you need to be just as concerned about money that you don't win as you are about money that you lose. So the idea of, oh, this money was already in my stack and it came off, that that somehow feels worse than this money could have been in my stack, but it's not here. You know, that those in the long run, those things cost you the same amount of money. But I, our human brains tend to be more concerned about the form, about losing something that we already have, as opposed to missing out on, on opportunities. And so I think that rather than like fighting that loss aversion, I think what you want is exactly what you were describing here, Carlos, is the you want it to trigger at missed opportunities. You want this to feel like a lot. When you see that they had a hand that like maybe they would have called a raise with, you want to feel a loss there in the same way that you feel a loss when you like call and lose and, and those chips are literally getting taken away from you. You know, you, you want the same loss aversion to, to trigger so that it will encourage you to make you know, the right, and the, same, and the same thing is true for bluffs as well. You know, it's easy to focus on like, oh, what if I, what if I call and lose? Or what if, what if they call and, and I lose, but it's also like, what if they would have folded and you didn't win that pot? Like that's also a loss. And so you want to feel that as a loss. Yeah. Very, very, very good advice. Well, thank you very much, Daniel, for writing. Uh, and please enjoy our interview. Uh, Kara Scott, thank you so much for uh, for joining us and for making time for us on the other side of the world almost. I really appreciate you guys asking. It's kind of weird, but I'm a little bit nervous. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> that, okay. that is very surprising to me. <laughs> this is going to be one of the smaller venues that you've done, I think. Oh, my God. I don't know. It's like I love the idea and I love what you guys do on the podcast as well. So I'm not used to the opening up myself kind of thing. So, um, yeah, it's it's fun, though. 
Well, we can, we can start slowly. Uh, so you're, you're grew up on a farm in Alberta. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Way up in Northern Alberta. Were you born there? No, I wasn't born there. Actually. Um, I was born in near this kind of like a city and my parents decided I was the youngest of three. And my parents decided after I was born a couple of years in that, you know, the city life wasn't for them. They were, kind of, they love to travel. And so they built a camper, <laughs> put it on the back of a truck, stuck three kids and a dog in there. And we just traveled for a couple of years. And um, it was pretty like on and off for a couple of years, like we'd stop maybe at a family and stay for a little bit living in the camper still. And then my dad and my mom actually bought a piece of land up in the middle of nowhere in Alberta, uh, close to where my dad had gone to go for hunting trips or whatnot. And, you know, land is pretty cheap up there. And then just built a shack that we lived in. We lived on the in the camper for a while, uh, obviously while he was building, because he kind of did it all by himself as well, like raising the walls, building the foundation, putting in. I mean, I want to say plumbing and power, but it was pretty basic. <laughs> so, um, but it was you know it was a it was four walls and it didn't have wheels, so it was it was pretty cool. It was it was definitely an interesting way to grow up. I was living in the camper. Um, well, I was pretty young, so I, I do still remember it. But for me, it was like, it was kind of fun. It was kind of a kick, you know, it felt like being on holiday all the time. But, you know, <laughs> for my brother and sister who are older than me, it was not as nice. We shared one long bed together because we're not talking an RV, like literally a small camper on the back of a, you know, pretty small truck. And then my parents, you know, the the little kitchen table flipped into a bed at night for them. And then we slept over the cab of the truck and and just kept moving around. And so it was fun for me as a kid. But I think for my mom, especially having to take care of a bunch of kids in that, like washing clothes in creeks when we had to literally, Jeez, yeah. um, you know, food and whatnot. And my dad hunting and then my mom having to clean whatever he caught or it, it was probably less fun <laughs> for them, <laughs> but it was still a pretty interesting way to, to live. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. Were they homeschooling you then or were you not yet school age? I wasn't school age yet. Yeah. And so we'd stop and and there was no, never really much homeschooling, although my parents are very big on education. And so there were always like, when we finally had a house, there were always a lot of books around. We had many different sets of many different kinds of encyclopedias that we could read, you know, back in the eighties, early eighties here. Um, so it was, yeah, an art, we did a lot of art and otherwise they just kind of let us, you know, play and do things to our own devices. And we wrote a lot. My, my sister and my brother and I all played games, played a lot of card games, like a lot. That's where my love of card games definitely began was in the back of the camper. Cause there's no rules in the late seventies, early eighties. You don't have to like wear seatbelts. We're all sitting in the back of the camper as dad's driving and playing card games, you know? And that was kind of where that started that love of that. And yeah, no, I ended up going to school after we finally bought this piece of land and my dad built like the first room of this shack where we were going to live. And it was the kitchen and it was the living room and it was the bedroom and we all had our little spots in it. And that's all he could build in the one year before the winter set in Northern Canada is really cold and the outhouse outside, you know, for the, the toilet, we didn't have plumbing until I was like, like indoor plumbing until I was like 14, maybe. I think so wow. it was basic, you know, we had a big garden and we would can all of the extras and put it in the root cellar, which was literally a, a hole, like a trap door in the floor that you would, it was just down into the earth and it would keep everything cold. And 
yeah, I grew up in like little house in the prairie. So <laughs> <laughs> did your parents have like any kind of traditional income or it was just strictly like subsistence? They ate what they're growing and hunting. No, they, man, they worked so hard. They both are such like grinders, really. My dad is this incredible builder and he can really build pretty much anything. And, and eventually he ended up having his own store selling furnaces and, and, and wood stoves and that kind of thing. And my mom did pretty much everything. She even had her own shop for a while. She did craft, she had a craft store because we were very crafty, as you can imagine, made a lot of our own clothes. But she was, she was also like the librarian at a lot of the different local schools. She was, um, she taught as well. She did some special education teaching. She's really incredible at bookkeeping. She worked as an editor as well for different people for books. And uh, like, she can literally do anything and my dad can build anything. So they just both worked incredibly hard as well as kind of taking care of our, you know, our one cow and our bunch of chickens and, and all of that. And us kids as well. I don't know how they did it. I'll be honest. How much of that did you inherit? Can you build a house? Uh, I wish I could. Oh man. It's so long ago. I used to be super handy. This is true. Like when I got my first cars, they were always like kind of old, like really old cars. And so you could literally fix things. I had this old beetle when I was in university and I could like fix it with rubber bands. <laughs> and I was always really proud of that. Like when things would be slipping in the engine, I could get in there and fix it. Uh, there's no way I could do that now. I'm going through a renovation on my house right now that we just, we just bought a new house in Slovenia and we're settling here for the first time in like my whole life settling down and doing the renovations, not ourselves. I might add, I'm not actually building anything is it's, it's eye-opening at yeah. How the other half did it <laughs> where you pay people to actually like build walls. It's incredible. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are reasons for the modern world. Oh yes. Oh yes. It, it has its drawbacks, but yeah, it has its upsides as well. <laughs> uh, are you still crafty? Do you like make things or do you still write? Uh, I do love uh, all of the above, actually. I think the last kind of 10 years, I fell out of doing a lot of that. I just, I was really busy with work. I was always traveling. I was always on the road. And then I had a, a baby. And then that kind of takes up a lot of space and time too. And now I'm getting back into it. I'd really love to start writing again. My sister uh, is an author. She's like a children's author and she's awesome and she's great at it. And I don't know. I just, it's not the kind of thing I would write. I would write something else, but who knows what? So uh, yeah, I might get back into that. I do a lot of Lego. That's not really crafty, but I love the kind of methodical nature of it, of building things, making things that look like, you know, real other things. My friend BJ Nemeth uh, got me involved in it over the, like the really sharp end of the pandemic when everyone was in quarantines and whatnot. That was, that was kind of a nice way to spend time, but I am looking forward to doing some more crafts and I do them with my kid as well. Lots of painting. So yeah, I, I went through a phase cause I was very into Legos when I was younger. Mm. Um, and then I, I discovered, uh, I guess sort of in the early internet, the at the time it would have been like blogs, it's pre-Instagram, but I'm, I'm sure yeah. people have only gotten better at it. The people who can build stuff with Lego, oh. is it's just incredible. I mean, I'm sure people have seen some of the more famous ones if you go to like the Lego store in New York or something, but um, yeah, just, you know, people, I, I like castles. So there's a whole community oh, yeah. of people who just build like, um, just like the, the idea that they can do that with Lego, it just it blows oh. your mind. I love it. I just find it fascinating. And I love watching videos about it too, because it is like this whole community of people where they're like, every it's not even really one-upping people. They just, it's like, I want to build this really cool thing. Oh, that's a really cool thing. And I don't know, it's very supportive and lovely in that kind of way also. I, and I, 
I dig that. <laughs> yeah. And I, I get the sense. I mean, I, I didn't engage that deeply with this, but the, there's a lot of like technique sharing where there's sort of like, oh, how, how did you get the the angle to look like yeah. that? And then, you know, they'll share. I'm sure they have like lingo for the names of individual pieces and things like yes. that. But yeah. <laughs> BJ is still trying to teach me all of it and I'm not learning it very quickly. So I think he's a little frustrated. I'm still like, you know, the bricks that look like it's a phone. <laughs> 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 yeah. It doesn't fly in the, in Lego circles. So I got to brush up on my lingo. Uh, so did you go straight into teaching out of out of high school or what was, what was your early career life? Well, for university, I ended up back in the city, which was kind of my first real city experience. It blew my mind. You know, I grew up in a place with like a couple of stop signs. <laughs> so moving to a city was wild. Which which city was that? Calgary, actually. Okay. And it was great. And I loved it. Um, I did five years of university there. I got my teaching degree as well as a, a degree in linguistics and then moved straight from there right after graduation to England and started teaching. And that was like inner city London. So I thought the move to Calgary was a big deal, but man, moving to London where it's such a massive city. Wait, how, how did that happen? Like, how, how did you, why did you go to London uh -huh. to teach? Well, I had a bunch of choices um, where I was thinking about going and I'd talked to a lot of recruiters and whatnot, and I knew they were looking for what they call supply teachers, so substitute teachers. And I liked the idea of it. I was actually married at the time. I got married super duper young uh, to my you know, high school sweetheart, I guess. And he was actually born in England and he'd been raised completely in Canada, but it was like a chance to go to England and actually do it. And I could do it and get a proper visa and the whole thing. And he could, cause he was a citizen. And so we thought, hell, why not? We'd never been anywhere, either one of us. We packed our suitcases and just moved to London with our suitcases, never having been there. And it was probably not advisable, but it was great. It was a hell of an experience, quite the learning experience, really. Carlos has a little bit of a substitute teaching experience. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah, I was actually just going through mentally the list here of things that we have in common with Kara that I didn't know about. Now, the substitute cool. teaching I knew about, I didn't know about the camper. Um, I spent some time the last couple of years living in a car here in Vegas yeah. and San Diego area. Yeah, so I didn't know about the camper, but yeah, I was familiar with the term supply teacher. Mm -hmm. I've run across that in a lot, a lot of places, but you're right. Most of the time we refer to that as substitute and I've done yeah. both as well. I think, um, did you also um, teach in a classroom as a head teacher? I did. Yeah, yeah, I did. And then I ended up just doing um, special needs teaching after a while. I, I did like regular teaching for a while and got a job, like a proper job. <laughs> And tried to kind of make that a go with that. And I just found it, it was so brutally hard in so many different ways. And I think I was so young and so completely naive, having just come out of Canada and never really had many experiences in life. And all of a sudden, I don't know, it was, uh, it, I was in over my head. I don't know about you. I found it <laughs> incredibly difficult. Yeah, I did it the opposite way where I actually started as a regular teacher and did that uh -huh. for five years and decided I wanted to pursue poker. So I quit and then started doing substitute teaching yeah. as a way to supplement, supplement my income, but also control mm. my schedule a little bit more. Yeah. And 
I enjoyed substituting way more than being a regular teacher. And when I did substituting in Portland, I had some experiences doing uh, special ed classes. And oh, that cool. was pretty cool. Like I was, I, I I had a few kids in my regular class back when I was uh, the head teacher, but it's a complete different sp- experience when you're in some of the more, um, some of the classes where the kids uh, have more difficulties. Yeah. And so I, I really enjoyed that, man. I like yeah. I miss that so much. Like those kids are awesome. They really are. I loved that part of it too. And I ended up teaching full time in special schools. Like so they weren't just like units, like you were yeah. saying too. And that was a really again so intense and incredible. And for me, the reason that I actually ended up leaving that was more dissatisfaction with the system. I was watching from the inside as funding was getting pulled away from these schools and these classes and these kids and these families who needed it so much. And we were being left with like it was getting harder and harder to do the job well. And I was so young and idealistic and I was burning myself out completely just trying to like, you know, you're you're buying your own supplies and you're trying to do this and you're trying to do that and trying to be everything. And I just... Yeah. I, for me, I have a really hard time not kind of going all in, I guess, with what I do. And I really loved those kids. And when my term came up, I decided I was going to go as a supply teacher and I kept supply teaching in that school. So I could stay in touch with a lot of the kids. And I was really glad for that, but I did it the same reason you did actually too. I, um, I wanted to start looking at TV work and I wanted to start looking at other things. And I was able to like call in the morning and say, is there a job for me and control my own schedule and still definitely supplement the income. Cause I was terrible for many, many years and didn't make a lot of money. It's funny. We do have a lot in common. I'd read that about living in your car as well. And, and like the reasons for it too. And, and I definitely resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of had the same experience you had, except you had it as like a three-year-old. I had it as a 30-year-old. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> it did feel like being on vacation, like, you know, all the time. So yeah, uh, I'm not doing it so much nowadays, and, and I do miss it sometimes. Yeah, I can see that. Growing up like that, I found it really hard to settle down. Like, I was completely rootless for so long once I moved to England I lived in London for five years and then I moved to Brighton for a few years and then I moved to Santa Barbara for a couple of years. Then I spent a whole year not living anywhere because all my stuff was locked in a in a like a, a unit in Santa Barbara and I'd lost my visa and I wasn't going to get it until the World Series the next year. So I couldn't actually re-enter the country. So I was like living nowhere for a while. Then I rented a room with a friend back in England and then I moved to Italy. And then I moved to Slovenia and then back to Italy and then down to the farm and then back to the city. And now we're back in Slovenia. And it's, yeah, it's, I think now I'm going to just kind of stay put, but I think growing up moving around so much really like made an imprint in my brain at a very young age. (laughs) So I'm I'm noticing that you don't have a Canadian accent or what I would think of as like an Albertan accent. I'm curious if that's because you've, you've lived so many different places or if that was something that you actively eliminated in order to work in television? Um, I think, I think maybe a, a little bit of both, but mostly the first, I think moving to England after I'd lived there for so long, I couldn't really afford, especially on a teacher salary to do a lot of going back and forth to Canada. So I do it when I could to see my family, but that was kind of it. And Otherwise, I was just literally living kind of British and I picked up this terrible British accent. You don't have a British accent either. (laughs) 
thank goodness not anymore. It was bad. And I didn't recognize it at the time. But when you watch like the early EPT shows or whatever, oh, wow. I sound like I'm, I sound like Madonna after she's married Guy Pierce and like had lived in England for three months. It was, it was bad. It was really bad. So then I thankfully let that go. I think moving back to the States for a couple of years, kind of kicked that out and I don't know. My accent just kind of wanders wherever. I, I just heard a little bit on that out. Yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I'm glad it's not gone. <laughs> I don't spend enough time in Canada. That's that's my bad. What do you miss about Canada? Well, definitely my family. I mean, that's, I guess, an obvious one, but that really is the big thing. I left. It was, God, it was 1999 when I left. So it's a long time ago. I don't really know a lot about modern Canada. Like I haven't spent a ton of time there. I was there a bit for poker as well. And then for family visits, but for me, Canada really is just about seeing my family now. Um, I've got friends there too, but not as many, but I miss some of the food. I was talking some other time, I, I maybe on Twitter talking about how I was really missing this thing called Saskatoon berries. They're like a typical Canadian berry that grows wild. And Lon McCarran actually surprised me. He, he found a bag of Saskatoon berries that they were selling, like they're dried so I can bake with them. And he brought them for me at the world series. And that was really sweet. Wow. Um, he's a good friend. He's a great guy. And yeah, he's very thoughtful in that way. But yeah, some of the food, definitely my family. And that's kind of it, really. I I really feel European after this long, you know, having been here 25 years now, except for like the two years in Santa Barbara. That's a long time. It's a really long time. Yeah. Although it seems like you haven't spent, I mean, I guess there's the five years in England, but it's, I mean, you've, you've kind of bounced around. I guess you said you feel European rather than feel you know Italian or Slovenian or whatever. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I was in London for five years, but then I lived in Brighton, which is part of England as well for a few more years. And that felt like my home for a really long time. Like it was the first place that I'd felt like I really belonged. I met these amazing friends there. I had this group of people that I'd kind of always grown up thinking about, like growing up in a small town, especially when you grow up a little bit differently than other people. I mean, like we might not have had an indoor toilet, but everybody else did. So it was different. I We weren't always as acceptable, I guess, as a lot of the other people and kids in town. And so I had friends definitely, but I always felt a bit on the outside for sure. And so moving and finding this big group of friends in England was just really life-changing for me and it meant everything. And so that even when I moved away, always felt like home was Brighton in England. I don't know. It's where I felt the most at home, except for my family, except for missing my family. So you said that it, it took you a while to break into television after you decided that you were interested in that and, and were trying to mm. pursue it. What did you have to do to to get there? Like, how did you have to level up to, to get into oh, television? Man, they tell you all these terrible things for advice. Like they tell you how you have to work for free for all this time and like pay your dues and get the experience. And Man, that's such. And who's the, the the they is the people who want you working for free? That's exactly it. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> it. It's like mm, okay, but I so I did a lot. I did, I mean, I did a lot of um, uh, student films and that kind of thing. And I mean, they need you to work for free because they're literally students just trying to make what they you know their thing. So I, I auditioned for everything I could get. I thought maybe I'd be an actor. I was so bad. I was so 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 bad. I did a lot of back background acting as well. Like I was in the back of a ton of music videos or commercials or TV shows and that kind of thing. And then just made some money and then auditioned. And then I, oh, I did some of those awful 
um, like really late night quiz show type of things until I realized it was a scam where you'd be having like, uh, you'd have this question be like a word question, like fill in the gaps for this word. What's the missing letter? That kind of thing. And when I realized that it was literally, they were just taking the last possible answer as a person who got it right. Cause they were just trying to stretch it out as long as they could and get as many people to call in and you had to pay to call in. And I was like, Oh, I can't do that. I'm so broke. And I still, I can't do this. This is just a scam for like people who are lonely at home. And then finally, I was just doing something that I love, which I was really involved in uh, Muay Thai at the time. And I really loved training and it was so much fun. And my trainer told me about this. What was it? A TV show. Yeah, it was the TV show. And they were looking for someone who could do television. And I thought, well, I could do that. And I can talk about it too. Like I can talk knowledgeably about this. And I ended up getting this job on like proper terrestrial television, hosting a show called Now is the Time, Night of Combat. And it was all like K1, <laughs> cage fighting, Muay Thai. And that was kind of the beginning of it for me. So that was more because you had the familiarity with, with Muay Thai, you kind of had a, an in there? Yeah, exactly. And I was just... I mean, I was eager and I guess I was uh, working for probably less than I should have. And I ended up having to, I had these huge fights with the producer about not getting the proper credit because I was actually a producer on the show as well. I was doing, I wasn't just hosting it. I was doing all of this production work because there weren't very many of us. It was a very small production and it was really like shoestring and dodgy, also very dodgy. And so I would fight with him and I had to quit a couple of times before he actually gave me credit in the credits as a producer. Cause I was like, no, this is important. This is about what I'm doing. And I might not be making very much money, but you know, I'm damn well going to get my credit. And I was glad I did. And then we had a big dispute about something else and I left, but it was, I learned, I learned so much through that job. Like about how to, how to be on TV. Yeah. And how to deal with producers, I think, or people that are like, yeah, definitely going to take advantage of anything they can and where to like set boundaries and how to listen to myself. And then, yeah, how to be on TV because I was doing so much producing behind the scenes and also helping the editors. I was like time coding everything and cutting things together so they would know what to do. And they just kind of, I was thrown in the deep end to do this. And I didn't realize that wasn't part really of the job that I was doing. And I, so I learned a lot about it. And that I think actually helped me so much when I ended up getting, you know, I got a poker job next, like a really little cable show. And then from that, I got the EPT and each time was kind of learning different skills as I went through and meeting different people and finding out how to kind of navigate the space of television and then poker as well. And there's some backgammon in there as well. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I got a backgammon job. That was really fun. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I imagine the strategy of backgammon would be fairly intuitive for, for people in poker or they would understand the role anyway, that like strategy plays mm -hmm. in, in backgammon. Um, I imagine there's a, a fair bit of strategy that goes into the Muay Thai as well. Um, yeah. But I know less about that. I'm, I'm curious if you can talk a little <laughs> bit about like what, what, what role does strategy play in a, in a competitive fighting? Well, I mean, it's a very long time ago, but one of the things that I found so similar between poker and Muay Thai for me, and something that I needed, especially at that point in my life where I was really young and, and very impressionable and shy and very Canadian and very provincial, <laughs> was that aggression is incredibly important. And so if you're going to win a fight, you can't be on the back foot all the time. Like that is one of the things that the judges are going to be looking at. They're looking at who the aggressor is, who's pushing forward, who's pressing, who's making the dance kind of happen in the right direction. You know, that's incredibly important. You need to be the one pushing the other person 
to the back foot. And poker was very much the same. And kind of learning that skill was great for me for business. It was great for me for life, that it's okay to step on the front foot to like be the aggressor, to to kind of take the power and the reins in that situation. And that's a very big similarity, I'd say. Yeah. I've, I feel like I've gotten some of that from poker. You know, it's a kind of a different different form yeah. of progression. But I mean, also when you were talking about learning to um, advocate for yourself with people who are going to take advantage of you, I felt like for me, poker is a space where it's um, expected that it's, things are going to be like ruthless and, and cutthroat. Right. And so I'm more comfortable doing it in that space because I, I like, I'm not naturally like that, but then I do feel like it's a useful muscle to develop when you are in situations where you're like, okay, well, this other person is being ruthless. So I'm going to need to like be ruthless back. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it kind of helps to mirror that before, for me, it helped me to mirror it before I was actually kind of able to do it, you know, like fake it till you make it. Like they say to have the muscle memory of what it felt like when I first started doing Muay Thai and or even kickboxing kind of before that I was in university and it was about, well, for me, it was because I always had watched martial arts movies and I loved, I loved martial arts and I loved martial arts movies and I loved watching it. So I wanted to be part of it and I was terrified. And my trainer, I remember him saying when I actually was leaving to move to England, he was like, I never thought you'd stick it out. (laughs) You were so hard on yourself. Every time you got something wrong, it just was all over your face. Like you expected everything to go right. And I'm glad you stuck it out and you got to be, you know, pretty good and pretty decent at it. Not great, obviously, but decent. And, and it was true. Like I needed to kind of learn those lessons of how to push through, to pretend to be aggressive before I could figure it out to like, yeah, it was really useful for me. Did you ever have amateur fights or I, I don't think you ever did professional? Group. No, no, I don't think there's a ton of professional in Canada, but no, definitely not that level. I did fight at some competitions and that was really good fun. The first, I had six competitive, not massively competitive, but six uh, matches in these kind of competitions. And the first two, I was the first two. Yeah. The first two, I, I completely just froze and got the crap beat out of me. Like it just, it was, I didn't know what to do. I like forgot to get my hands up. I couldn't kick. I couldn't do anything. It was just too much for me. And, and then after that I started to win and I got a couple of trophies actually. And that was really nice. Awesome. Any, any video footage of this? You know what? I've been told that there is, and I don't know where it went and I would love, <laughs> it would be such a mess. Oh my God. It'd be like the worst windmilling arms ever you've ever seen, but I would love to see it. <laughs> yeah, this sounds like a lot of fun. I, that's another thing that I did. I did a little bit of uh, MMA training, but mostly just for fitness. And we only did grappling on the ground and we would do um, strikes with the coach, but we never, I never did like a, a, a fight or sparring or anything like that. So it was pretty cool. It's a really cool sport to kind of learn the lessons from life like you mentioned Mm. and and I I kind of got started as a fan of that stuff early like I started with UFC and this would have I had to look up the date it's crazy how long ago this was it started in 1993 so that even preceded you know what you were doing um in television so you mentioned K1 but did you cover UFC at all? No, 
No, K1 was kind of, it started to come in towards the end of my time with that show and I liked it, but for me, it felt so much more brutal. Like the head, especially like the the head punches. So Muay Thai, a lot of it is body blows, a ton of it. Like your legs are just destroyed and your sides and there's, there's a lot of pain involved, but it was less kind of head focused. And for me, I just really struggled with that kind of that part of it but I loved watching the grappling and there's so much technique and so much like skill involved in that watching people who are really good at these sports for me is just next level yeah that was my favorite thing was going to that class like you know multiple times a week and just grappling with kids that were like maybe more than 100 pounds less than me and they would just choke me at (laughs) there was nothing I could do there was nothing I could do it's amazing how much the skill overpowers the size that's amazing it's definitely something I'm going to get my kid involved in when she's old enough if she wants to but I hope she does because I think it's so empowering to be able to like know how to move your body in ways to protect yourself but also just to know kind of the limits of it I think that's really important. Were you a poker fan? I mean, I know you mentioned like playing poker among many other games when you were a kid, but like, were you already a poker fan before you got your first poker job? Or was that something where you kind of immersed yourself in that world by necessity? Mm, Yeah. I don't think I'd looked at poker for a few years, actually, like as an adult, definitely not before I got involved in poker. I was pretty surprised to get the the message from this poker channel that had started up this little cable channel that was had seen my sports work and they wanted me to kind of come in and be the voice of the novice and do these long live shows where we look at all these online tournaments and go through with a pro and the host between the two of them just kind of talk through the hands. And so I was completely a novice. I didn't know the space. I didn't know the personalities. I didn't, I'd never played Texas Hold'em. I had to learn literally on the job. And thankfully, one of the first people I met there was this guy named Nick Welthall. And he became an incredibly close friend really quickly. He's been a guest on this show. Yeah, I love Nick. He was the best man at my wedding. And I actually was the vicar for his wedding. So... (laughs) Yeah. He's, he's a, he taught me how to play. He played my first, he helped me play my first hand and then taught me on the show as well. Like what to do, introduced me to the whole space, got me all these links to watch of like different shows so that I knew exactly what I was getting myself into. And that was kind of it for me. I was, I was so hooked. <laughs> I was going to ask like, what was the first poker um, broadcasting job you got? This little cable show, definitely that was it, but it was pretty small. So I don't know if that really I mean, I guess it counts. It was still on television, just in the like the 600 numbers or something in England. (laughs) (laughs) And we shared a studio with like the, there was, it was definitely some, I'm pretty sure soft porn. Um, It was like the adult (laughs) channels. So (laughs) it was really pretty dodgy. Um, And then after that, there was a brand new channel on Sky that they decided to start up called Sky Poker. And it was kind of a big deal at that time. Like it, they put a, poured a lot of money into it. And I was one of the first presenters for that as well. And that was fun because that was like my first big TV job. Like I worked with green screens, like, you know, like a weather forecaster with like the big map behind them. And I was able to like point at things and move things and have this big studio with all these cameras. And it felt absolutely incredible to be in that position and worked with all these really interesting people too, um, other pros or other hosts. And then from there, I ended up on the EPT for a couple of seasons and that was super fun too. And then like 
from there, it was, I was doing a lot of British poker TV. So like the late night poker type um, shows that we would do like single table shootout kind of things. I did a lot of PKR stuff. I did a lot of the party poker shows and then high stakes poker came in and then the world series came in and I just kind of like felt like I was able to go to all the shows I wanted. I felt so lucky, honestly, so lucky to do them. How are poker people different from backgammon people? <laughs> There's a ton of crossover. Backgammon people, it's hard to know how to answer that actually, because like I was going to say, well, they have more gamble, but do they? I don't know. Backgammon people have some <laughs> gamble in them, I tell you. Um, I mean, I feel because backgammon is basically solved, right? Like I feel like you kind of have to have some gamble to play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like when you get the doubling cube involved, that's kind of where the edge comes in. And I don't know. I met people on my first backgammon gig where it was the world champions or the world series backgammon in Monte Carlo. And we were doing a TV show about this. And there were people who literally didn't change their clothes because they'd come in one day and they just couldn't leave because they didn't have any other clothes. They just wanted to stay and keep playing and keep playing and keep playing. And so they did. And I was like, wow, you guys are obsessed with this game. <laughs> um, and then I learned how to play and I was like, oh, I get it. Oh no, this is terrible. <laughs> this is going to take over my life. <laughs> but thankfully I, I struggled to remember all the perfect moves, like beyond the first couple of moves. And it was just too hard. So I, uh, I was never going to go anywhere with it, but I actually got to play in the doubles, the world championship doubles one year with Paul McGreal, who was the commentator on the TV show. And I was the host. So that was a wild experience. I just rolled the dice literally. And that was it. But Stella was fun. <laughs> How much of the wildness was the, the show itself versus, or the book playing versus Paul, because my understanding is he was a pretty wild character himself. Oh man, he was so wild. He was so wild. Like he would tell me stories that just just blew my mind. Like leaving these big bags of money in the back of a car by accident, a taxi, and then this happened, then that happened, and just and he would be so intense and intent on the backgammon while we were watching. We would have like, you know, the the big um, headphones on over our ears and we'd have those microphones in front of us and we'd be watching intently. And it used to drive him nuts because he couldn't hear me through the mic, through his headphones. So he would move one back off his ear so he could listen to what I was saying, which was really sweet. But he would be moving around so much and so animated that the whole thing would start to slide. And at one point, I swear to you, his headphones were basically on his face and on the back of his head. And I was, every time I looked at him, I was like, Paul, you've got to sort this out. You've got, and he just, he was so intent on, on everything he was doing and saying, cause he loved that game more than just almost anything. It was, yeah, he was a wild character and I was really glad I got a chance to, to meet him and work with him. Did you ever see him play poker or you only knew him through backgammon? You know, I bumped into him in the halls of the Rio a couple of times over the years for poker and he offered to give me some coaching and I was like, I'm doing all right. I appreciate it though, Paul. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so no, I don't think I ever watched him play, but yeah, X-22, quack, quack. Were you more intimidated uh, the first time that you sat down at like a high stakes poker table or the first time that you walked into, I, I know I keep mispronouncing it, uh, Muay Thai uh, ring? <laughs> oh wow um probably poker really? poker's terrifying yeah yeah and because there's so much downtime i'd rather get punched in the face then 
Yeah. But the first time you get punched in the face, you learn pretty quickly. It's actually not that bad. So you're like, okay, not a big deal. Your head snaps back and you're like, oh, I've been scared of this my whole life or whatever. And it's not that bad. So I don't know, for me, that was kind of freeing. And sitting down at poker was like, okay, now I have to sit here for hours, potentially, if I'm lucky. And I need to think the whole time. It's not just kind of a lot of reaction for six minutes. And then I get out of the ring. This is like, this is intense. This is, I'm in over my head. And I was definitely, and I was so lucky. I got, like, I ran incredibly well. And I mean, I started playing back in like 2005. So poker was very different back then. And it was easier to beat for sure. And I, so between that and the fact that I did run really well, it was, I had a great start to poker way above expectation. And yeah, even still I sitting down at some of those tables was like, Oh my God, what am I doing here? There's so much money at stake. <laughs> did, did Was it a good enough start that you started to think like, Oh, maybe I'll just play poker instead of hosting poker. <laughs> no, I actually never ever planned to go pro or felt like I should, or that I could even like, I think because of my job, I spent a lot of time around the biggest players in the game. And, you know, like with high stakes poker, especially I, I saw what it took to be a really good poker player and how focused you had to be, how much work you had to do. And I knew I wasn't going to be doing that. Like for me, my like professional development or whatever, so to speak, was always about broadcasting. And I loved that, but I couldn't, I didn't have the time to do both. I couldn't focus on both. And I knew how much I loved broadcasting. The fact that I got to play as well was like this huge bonus. So I could be around poker, I could play, but I could actually do what I felt like I was really good at. And I didn't feel like I was really talented, particularly talented at poker. I just really loved it. And I liked playing it. So being able to be a recreational player was perfect for me. And I, I don't think I ever really thought about going pro. When you have, you know, that you're going to have just two minutes or something like that to interview somebody. How do you think about like what you're trying to get out of that time and, and how to make the most of it? Ah, oh, that's really changed over the years for sure. Now I'm kind of trying to figure out what's what kind of emotion are we trying to get out of this interview? Like, have they just busted? Are they thinking about their family? Are they like what's really important to them right now? Did someone tell them, you know, is there someone at home watching who's like is really proud or, you know, that kind of thing? So I'm trying to get at the emotion and then I try to kind of work back from that to the questions I might ask. But yeah, I, I just find that being so much more interesting these days than the poker like strategy questions for me. And also, like I said, I'm not the strategy person. I don't think I should ask those questions so much. I'm not going to get all the nuances that someone who is playing at that level would get. And so I, I kind of playing to my own strengths and trying to get the personality stuff, the people stuff out of them. So, yeah, I, I will say as a player, uh, I, I would appreciate not having to recount the details of the hand that I just busted on. Right. <laughs> oh man. And what would you do differently there? Like, yeah. Oh, I'd not bust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've definitely asked that. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure you're expected to in some situations, but I, Sometimes, I yeah. appreciate the uh, looking for something else to talk about. <laughs> you have a, your own podcast now, which, you know, the longer form, you know, interviews with, with poker people. What are you trying to get? there? How, how does that differ from the way you approach uh, the very short interviews? That is kind of, because I feel like to get people to really open up and talk about things that are sort of more deep down, it takes time and comfort. Like you need to feel comfortable with someone to answer questions in a way that really goes below the surface. And that's kind of what I want. I want below the surface. That's 
that's the, the why the the way the questions are structured is to kind of like get to a sort of like almost forced intimacy which yeah it's kind of what i'm trying to do and in the short ones it's really nice i'm just trying to get a kind of a quick hit of emotion but for the crowd for the the viewers that's really for the viewers the long form podcast even though i i do it for 888 and i'm so glad they want me to that's kind of more for me <laughs> i like i want to get to know these people i actually I want to hear what they say is the most important thing to them. I want to have that kind of contact with other humans so that I can see them as people and not like archetypes or faces on the screen or, you know, any of that. I, I, I don't know. I kind of want to remember how human people are. And I feel like sometimes even with social media or watching, just watching people on TV or even just seeing them in not the Rio anymore. Is it, I was going to say in the halls of the Rio, um, seeing people at the world series, like you bump into them and you might talk a little bit, but it's so, it's just not what I'm looking for right now at this point in my life. I really do want to kind of ask the big questions, get the big answers and feel that kind of human connection. And you started the podcast kind of around the beginning of the pandemic, right? Yeah. So I'm yeah. assuming there's some connection there of wanting to uh, reach out to other humans. For real. Yeah. I think, I think luckily it started right before, but then oh, okay. very quickly, like, yeah, when the, right before the lockdowns happened in Italy, and I mean, they were pretty extensive in Italy and it was the first place outside, I think of China that That's was right, really hit. Yeah. yeah. So everyone was kind of ignoring it, like, obviously, because it was something that wasn't ever going to touch the rest of us, you know, but we kind of had this weird idea being on the internet, being terminally online, and, and knowing a lot of people who are saying, actually, this is a big deal. Like, this is something that's going to happen here as well, and going to happen, and probably in Italy, even faster, because we were starting to see cases coming up. So we, one day, we're just like, uh, so do we put a one-year-old in the car and drive 10 hours to the farm, <laughs> just to have a couple of weeks of peace? well, things settle down. That's what we thought two weeks would be fine. Um, so that's what we did one afternoon. We like packed up a couple of bags, put the toddler in the car, drove to the family farm, and then ended up spending like 200 days there. And the podcast really did help with that being on a farm and in basically in isolation completely seeing almost nobody else for that length of time and having a toddler to care for as well. And it was hard. It was really hard and missing my family. And my father had a, a heart attack really early on as well in the oh. pandemic and not, I couldn't go to Canada. There was no way to fly. You just couldn't do it. And I obviously mm. couldn't take my child and I couldn't leave her behind. And it was, yeah. So having that kind of contact was great and necessary. And yeah, I just was like sending out messages into the ether, you know, like, is everybody out there still? <laughs> like, what the hell's going on right now? So, yeah. Yeah, your Twitter is awesome <laughs> because I remember, like, I remember you, uh, your accounts of this trip with your child. <laughs> uh, it's almost like, you know, watching a movie just to see, like, you know, if you made it and, like, how, how it was going. <laughs> so, yeah, like, when, when you brought that up, I remember following your Twitter and just, like, feeling like, you know, I was experiencing some of that as well. Oh, I'm glad. I kind of wanted that. Like, I wanted to write about it. I wanted to, like, I don't know, kind of make it real in a way. It was very real to live it, but I just wanted to make it interesting and funny as well and light in a way because there was lots of that, too. Like, it wasn't it wasn't awful. I was on a beautiful farm in the middle of nowhere in Italy with really nice food. And 
but yeah, so being on the farm when everybody else was kind of stuck in their houses was incredibly lucky. But yeah, for me, being able to talk about it and make it interesting and funny and connect to people, it just helped the entire thing feel more like a movie, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And even before this pandemic, um, I mean, you already have a, a post-viral condition, right? Like coming in, yeah. coming into everyone else's like more recent uh, experience with with uh, viruses. Yeah. yeah, unfortunate, definitely unfortunate. I mean, you talked about like, uh, it seemed like everyone else in Italy was kind of trying to ignore it. Do you feel like you were more, I guess, aware of uh, potential dangers? Um, you know, I don't think so much. It was yeah. me actually. I think it was my husband who was just, yeah, it just kind of rang true when I thought about it. I was like, yeah, this is true. We need to like go. And I grew up reading a lot of like post-apocalyptic literature. I, I was a voracious reader as a kid. I read way above my reading level and I should not have been reading this stuff that I was reading. I shouldn't have, it was not good for kids. And it really got into my head. So I've always had a bit of a apocalyptic sort of... <laughs> view on the world, I guess. So it didn't surprise me when it kind of happened. And I was like, yep, this is what you do. You go to the country. So that's what we did. <laughs> Have you read uh, Station Eleven? No, I haven't. I've been trying to find it as well to watch it. And I'm going to just buy it and read it because yeah, but unfortunately part of my, the post-viral condition, whatever I have, uh, M-E-C-F-S is what it is. I got really sick. Actually, uh, I got mono huh, when I was living in England, in London, and I didn't rest and I didn't take the time to be careful. And I was training a lot for Muay Thai. I was like doing a fight film at the time as a fight extra. And so I was constantly training. I was partying way too much and I just never recovered. And that sucks. And honestly, I have to say like having a post viral condition that doesn't go away is terrible. And for a lot of it, I was kind of bedridden for the first year. Uh, and now I am able to like deal with it almost flawlessly, but it does mean that my life has to change. I don't do a ton outside of work or spending time with my family. I just don't do anything. I spend a lot of time resting. So don't get it. It sucks. You know, it, it also kind of teaches you a lot, I suppose. Well, that makes me extra grateful to you for uh, taking this hour to um, to talk to us if it's taking uh, <laughs> if it, if it's taxing you. No, no, this is super fun, and I'm really lucky. Like I, I managed to figure it out, especially maybe six or seven years ago, and go into a pretty strong remission. So as long as I don't push myself too hard, like I'm still recovering from the World Series right now, uh, but it's almost done. So that's good. Like. It takes me a little while, you know, maybe a month to kind of get back on my feet and then I'm back to what I consider normal. I just don't work out or do anything too intense, but this is definitely a fun way to spend an afternoon. <laughs> oh, that's great. Thank you. Are, are you kind of happy with, with where you are in poker now? I mean, it, it seems like earlier in your career, anyway, you kind of bounce around between a lot of different things. Do you feel like you're, you're settled into the, the poker and the presenting at this point, or are there still uh, other ideas fluttering around in your head? Well, I mean, I am happy where I'm at. Definitely being back at the world series every summer for me is like, it's just joy. I love that job. I love the crew that we work with. The TV crew are amazing. And just, I don't know, that for me is like the top of the top and working with eight at eight has been really great as well. Cause they are really good about 
the fact that I I'm not traveling as much because uh, my child also has a, she has a lung condition. So with COVID and everything, I've been really careful because of that. So I don't travel an enormous amount to play live either. And when I do, I'm wearing a mask and that can be not great for optics, I guess, for a lot of people, but it's what I do and I'm happy to, and they've been really good about it. And I, I'm really impressed by the way they've handled that. So yeah, I like where I'm at, but I do still have some ideas and you know, there's a few ideas kind of buzzing around my brain. I've been thinking about how to do them or how to get them out there. And yeah, I don't know. And again, it would be poker, but it would be more lifestyle and more people and how people spend their time and, and that, that kind of side of it. So we'll see, we'll see, we'll see. Well, I, I would be interested. I, I think you do great work you know, of, of, of the various people in, in the poker presenting world. I, I think you are <clears throat> uniquely interesting. Thank you. I appreciate that. I do. I love what I get to do. So I feel pretty lucky for that. It's nice because I, you know, I can go to the world series and do that for that really intense period of time and then come home and kind of live my life and do some poker stops as well. Like I was in Madrid with 888 earlier in the year, and that was really amazing. And they're going to be in Coventry in October as well. And kind of thinking about that, but otherwise I get to, you know, be at home and try to read my books and like do some stuff. And that's really nice. I'm very lucky that way. Your Twitter over the last couple of, um, I guess maybe like a year or so now, like it, it was definitely eye opening to learn so much more about you because we've all seen you like on TV over the years. And, you know, just like you said, in the halls of the Rio and you kind of had more of a, um, I would say like a button up image. And then there's so, Oh Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so many things I learned about you through Twitter. Like, like I would never know that this girl was like, you know, into Muay Thai at one point. And like, like that was really cool. And then also like you talked about how I, I misunderstood a word you said. So I'm going to, I did some uh, research here and I'm pretty sure other people misunderstood this earlier. You used the word provincial, which I had no idea what that meant. But when I did a little research and, um, uh, Canada, they they have provinces, and so it's like it basically means what we would call like rural or country. Definitely. And say I didn't know that. Yeah. So so when I heard that word initially, I thought you meant kind of like meek, um, <laughs> and maybe it's a little bit of that as well. Yeah. And because you talked about it in relation to uh, like um, as opposed to um, the aggression that you learned in Muay Thai, and then I feel like oh on Twitter you've gotten a little bit more aggressive lately. And, and I wouldn't have guessed that, you know, uh, when the when I think about like the Kara Scott that we see, you know, high stakes pokers is doing the interviews, but the Twitter lets us see more of like the person behind that image. And it's, it's pretty cool because, like I said, you have a lot in common with Andrew and I. And so we were really excited to, to talk to you because it was like I, I like the fact that it felt like felt more comfortable on Twitter being your authentic self than you did, you know, on TV. And like somehow because of everything that was going on with COVID is like you, for some people kind of became controversial. Yeah. I was like, how does Kara Scott <laughs> of all people become controversial? But that shows you how backwards the world was around this whole Yeah. Thing. Honestly, I think the fact that I became a little controversial is I take that as such a point of like, at least I'm finally saying stuff, you know? I'm really happy about yes. that. I think I was really meek for sure. And I always thought that I was never the story. So 
I was the interviewer and I was very, like you say, buttoned up. And I have always been exceedingly private, I think, up until the last couple of years. And that at that point, I don't know what happened or what changed. It could be age as well. Like I just turned 48 um, this month. So it could honestly just be a function of finally kind of maturing a little bit where it doesn't really enter into my thinking so much what people are going to think about what I say. And I just feel like there's so many important things in the world to talk about. And I, I, and it's great to have fun. Don't get me wrong. I love having fun yes. too. I think that's awesome. And it's part of life that should be there, but I, I just think there's so much important stuff out there we should be talking about too. Yeah. And it's freeing. It's freeing yeah. to be able to speak your mind on these things without, you know, regard to what people think yeah. about it. And it's, it's, it's a breath of fresh air to, you know, see someone like you um, get to do that. So, yeah. I appreciate that a lot. I really do. I'm glad it comes across that way. Is there anything that you'd like to uh, leave people with? Well, if they've listened this far, <laughs> I would say thank you. Um, definitely. Because it's nice to be able to give a little background on who I am. I know that, yeah, I can seem a little bland on camera sometimes and I can seem a little fiery or spicy on Twitter sometimes. And the truth is always <laughs> somewhere in the middle. Like, I think that's important right. for people to know is like the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And if you really want to talk about important stuff, then like, like hit me up because I'm your girl. Cause I really enjoy finding out about the actual stories below things and let's get below the surface, you know? Uh, so the podcast is the heart of poker podcast. If people want to find right. that, um, is there a, a a venue that you prefer that they find that anywhere they find it with their podcast. I think normally I say the pod bean one, but I have no idea how metrics work. So if you're listening, <laughs> please just enjoy and let me know who you think I should interview. And yeah, like leave feedback. Cause I'm always really curious to, to find out what people think about it. Cause I know it's not really like a lot of the content out there. So I'm curious. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Kara. It was great getting to, uh, to hear your story and yes, it is definitely not blend. <laughs> I'm glad. And you guys are awesome. I love what you do. Genuinely think that this is like one of the absolute best podcasts in this space. So thanks for letting me be on it. Thank you. Oh, thanks very much. of a car, the fair passage of a bill, and who will sign us into law? I know you won't, you won't.